At Qualcomm, we believe in staying connected, and you can see us wherever 5G is helping transform telemedicine, supporting remote education, and powering mobile PCs. The Invention Age is here. Learn more at qualcomm.com slash invention age. stuck in a dead-end job, or those of you who want to be entrepreneurs, or those of you who have a multi-million dollar idea that'll make all your dreams come true, but you just don't take the risk. So we have uh, today a very special guest. His name is Adam Grant. He's a young guy. He is a best-selling author. He has the respect of many, many powerful people inside, especially the uh, corporate world and the tech world. And his book is called Originals. And we're going to find out that maybe you're a genius, but don't know it. You know, maybe you don't have to be the smartest guy in the room or the woman in the room to be a genius. Or worst of all, are you working for a bunch of turkeys who are idiots? You know, and what can you do to get your point across? So any comments, Kim? Adam's going to give us some eye-opening insights into a lot of research that he's done on this. And it's going to be uh, different than I think a lot of people think. Because originality is something that everybody can possess, but a lot of us don't. He's going to go into why that is, why some people are more successful than others, why fear holds people back, and how to overcome it. I mean, there's a ton of information that we're going to go through in this show today. See, I believe everybody has a multi-million dollar ideas inside of them. You know, I don't and we think... believe everybody has a genius inside yeah. of them. So Adam Grant is a New York Times bestselling author. He's a professor of management and psychology at Wharton Business School, Mr. Trump School. So you mentioned, let's start with the geniuses, because I definitely was not a genius in school. <laughs> but in my class, there were two guys who were national merit scholars. You know, they were geniuses. They went on to Stanford University. Another went to Dartmouth and all this. But we never heard from them again. And so in your book, Originals, let's start with those guys that I was always, you know, jealous of. You know, how come those guys are so smart and I'm the village idiot here? So what can you tell me? Uh, but how come you're successful today and they're not? Yeah, I mean, well, I didn't want to say that. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so like, what can you tell us about prodigies or geniuses, these guys who play at Carnegie Hall or the NFL and all this stuff, and they, the, the world that seems to be handed to them? Well, the, the child prodigies are a fascinating place to start because you know, we, we all admire these these kids, right, who can read when they're two and, you know, they can beat all of us at chess by the time they're four, and we think they're going to go on to change the world, but if you look at the data, just like your classmates, Robert, they very rarely do. And a lot of people think it's because they're lacking social skills and, you know, they just can't function in the real world, but only about a quarter of child prodigies suffer from any kind of social or emotional problems. The rest of them are, are quite delightful. And so the, the big problem that they face is that they never learn to be original. They learn to master other people's rules, other people's games, and they can play a perfect Mozart sonata, but they never compose an original score of their own. And I think of original people as, as the nonconformists, the people who question the status quo, who drive creativity and change, and that's ultimately what leads people to really make big, big impact in the world. Does the school system have something to do with that? Because uh, you know our thing is, yeah. What? How, how so? 
Uh, Kim, this will be no surprise to you, but uh, the most creative children are the least likely to be the teacher's pet. <laughs> teachers look at these nonconformists and they say, gosh, oh, that's Robert. That's Robert. Oh, that's me. You're talking Thank about God. Robert. I had, there was hope for me. <laughs> Nobody told me, though. <laughs> well, I, I think that's a good sign, right? Because you know, the more that the more that teachers squash that, the more you take your originality elsewhere, and learn that you don't have to necessarily play within an existing system. So let's take the opposite of that. Let's let's say somebody's listening to us right now that said, you know, I didn't like school. I was afraid to speak up. I'm working for a company led by turkeys and idiots. You know, and but I have great ideas. What would you? Or I, I really want to do something different. I, I have, I have wonderful thoughts. I could do great things. What would you say to that person? Well, a lot of people think the answer is I should just quit my day job and become an entrepreneur. But if you track the data and you compare those entrepreneurs who take the big risk and say I'm going to go all in, with the ones who are a little bit unsure of themselves and decide to be cautious and keep the day job and start the business on the side. That second group is 33% less likely to fail because they don't have all their eggs in one basket. They don't feel pressure to rush their product to market right away, and they can take their time to get it right. So I would say, you know, start tinkering on the side, and then eventually you'll be ready to show the turkeys who's boss. Right, and that's why we at Rich Dad always advise people, you know, keep your daytime job but start a part-time business or start investing part-time so that the sheer terror of financial failure doesn't cloud your brain system. Is that basically what you're saying? Yeah, and for me that was actually a big aha from Rich Dad was you know, I'd never thought about wealth as something that you measure by how long your income can sustain you. Right. And you, know, you, you have to. You have to build up that safety net before you're going to do something truly original. Well, it was also my Rich Dad was – both my dads were great guys, poor dad and our rich, rich Dad. You know, my poor dad – was a genius. He went to Stanford, Northwestern University of Chicago and all this, head of education, but he never told, he never stifled our creativity. When I was flunking out of school, he just said, well, <laughs> keep going. <laughs> you know, it wasn't any big deal to him. And my rich dad was very much the same way, but he always taught us not so much about safety nets, but plan your escape to things. So when I came back from the Marine Corps, from Vietnam and the Marine Corps, My rich dad says you have to develop the skills of an entrepreneur. And the number one skill, according to him, was the ability to sell, to raise capital, to handle rejection. So that's why he had me, coming from a very conformist organization, the Marine Corps, into entrepreneurship where I didn't have a steady paycheck. I didn't have the skills. And failure was every 24 hours. I I faced failure the next morning. So that's why he had me prepare, and that's why I worked for Xerox to gain the skills, but at the same time started my part-time business. And that's, that's kind of the story of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. It makes so much sense, and it, it tracks so beautifully with the, with the data on you know, that these original people in the world, they get eventually to a point where they're so frustrated by organizations that reward conformity instead of innovation that they decide they're going to do something different. Yeah, but you don't just you know take, hit the parachute and go outside blind. That's you know, that's ridiculous. <laughs> and, and Adam, in in your t- in your book Originals, um, you talk about creativity versus originality. They're not exactly the same thing. Can you explain that? Yeah. So you know, I think about creativity as generating new ideas, but to be original, you have to take an extra step and actually take some initiative to bring your ideas into the world and make your vision a reality. Okay, I, and one more thing I mean, that's very distinct because you talk about achievement versus being original. 
And that to me was kind of eye-opening because so many people who are into achievement are not original. They conform, they climb the corporate ladder. You know, they, they say yes, sir, no, sir, because they want to achieve and they live in terror of failure or mistakes. Is that what you said? Yeah, we, we see so many people who go on to do what seem like conventionally high-achieving careers but never really challenge the status quo. So, you know, think about doctors who care for patients but never try to fix a broken healthcare system or teachers who deliver these masterful algebra lessons but never question, is algebra really what our kids need to learn? And we see this in business all the time, right? People who follow the rules who end up, you know, having high performance in their jobs and they become middle managers and then they're primary focus is on shutting down innovation. And, and, and right along that, you say, Adam, that in your book, you say the hallmark of originality is rejecting the default and exploring whether a better option exists. So you're saying a lot of people never question whether there's a better op- option. They just go along with the status quo. I did say that, didn't I? You did say that. <laughs> I mean very, it. Yeah, it's, there's this, this, this study that I, I thought was absolutely fascinating where it turns out we can predict your job performance and how long you stay in that job just by knowing what web browser you use. So some people don't like the results of this study. (laughs) But there there is good evidence that people who use Chrome and Firefox have higher job performance and stay 15% longer in those jobs than Internet Explorer and Safari users. Because? At first we thought it was a technical advantage, you know, that like the computer savvy people are the ones who use Chrome and Firefox. But that wasn't the case. It was about where you got the browser. Because if you're an Internet Explorer Safari user, those came pre-installed on your computer. They were the default, and you just accepted what was handed to you. If you wanted Chrome or Firefox, you had to be a little resourceful, and you had to question, is there another browser out there? And then do something about it, and that turns out to be a window into how you approach your work. So there, there are a lot of people who hear that, and they say, so if I want to get better at my job, I just need to download Firefox? <laughs> so no, everybody's going to switch the kind of person who looks at the world that way. And once again, it's for Robert Kiyosaki, the Rich Dad Radio Show. We're talking to Adam Grant. He has the book of a fantastic book, Originals. I think this book, this book is perfect for anybody who has million-dollar ideas, may want to leave their steady job and start their own company, or are just, just want to find out what their native genius or originality is. You know, can you have creative ideas? Can, can originality be learned? Can creativity be learned? That's what I want to find out next. Yeah, so before we go to break, I'm very concerned now because I don't even know the difference between Firefox, Chrome. <laughs> I, I could have told I, you that. I have no idea what you guys are talking about. That, that must make me an idiot. <laughs> Either that yeah, or what you're if questioning you have... the default of the Internet browser in the first place. <laughs> what, if you, what if you're questioning the <laughs> You know, I, I somehow oh. wonder how I survived this long because I don't really – you know that old TV show, um, Hogan's Heroes, there was Sergeant Schultz. He always said, I know nothing, and I, I've, I've survived Adam by knowing nothing. So, you know we, what, though, that, that was a big surprise for me is, is a lot of the greatest originals throughout history were not the biggest experts in their fields. Yeah. They were, the, were the people who had broad experience and enough curiosity to ask how things could be different and, and a little bit better. Right. Yeah, that's why I liked your idea about especially designers of clothing and all that. They've had the blessing of traveling the world and seeing many different things. And not everybody has that, ex, has that ability or that experience or those life experiences. So when we come back, we'll be talking more to Adam Grant. Again, he is the author of the book Originals, How Nonconformists Move the World. And this is especially important for you at this time in world history because the world is going through tremendous upheaval. So uh, one of the things I really liked about your book was that you talked about procrastination. And that is, you know, 
I've often said that key to success is laziness. You know, so I sit around and because I, I sit and then if I worry or think, you know, at this project, I think about it harder. You know, worry kind of inspires me to become creative. One of the biggest risks I took was this was when during the dot com boom and all this and everybody wanted to become, you know, take a company public through an IPO. So I sent out the message through all, through all our graduates, and I said, I'm going to teach you how to take a company public through an IPO. Of course, I had no idea how to take a company public through an IPO. And for about three months, I sweat, worried, woke up at night in cold sweat, you know, ate four meals, drank heavily, wondering, how in the world am I going to teach somebody about an IPO? And then one day, our next-door neighbor says, hey, you want to meet Frank? I said, who's Frank? He said, well, he's the guy who takes com- companies public and does I- IPOs. I said, thank you, God. Thank you, God. Remember that, Kim? <laughs> oh, I remember. That's Frank. And, and you know, here's what I loved about Frank. Frank it took about 66, 70 con- companies public in his lifetime. Um, but you say in your, in your book, Adam, the starting point of originality is curiosity. And the one thing about Frank Crary, and he was 92 when he died, till the day he died, he was the most curious person ever. Ever, always asking questions, always wanting to learn more, always looking for new ideas until the day. I mean, he was in coming out of an operation when he was 90 years old and he's talking to me about this next deal he wants to do. <laughs> Not even to his hospital room yet. So um, I love this. that It's it's asking why. You're always asking why. You're so questioning. So tell him about that event when we had Frank the first time we met him. See, he, Frank didn't want to talk to our group. You know, so I, I said, Frank, would you sit in the back of the room? He goes, okay, I'll do that. Yeah, and then once he realized that we didn't know what we were talking about, he, he moved to the front of the room and started teaching about IPOs. So it was, and, it was and Frank and I took three companies public through IPOs after that. We became best of friends and great partners. But had I not said I was going to do something that I couldn't do and then procrastinated like you advised and sweat and worried, my brain cells started firing off. Now saying, how am I going to, you know, CYA myself? What do you think about that? You know, I, I actually find it fascinating because when you procrastinate, you give yourself time to incubate. You open up a little bit more nonlinear thinking instead of just following, you know, a structured plan. And, you know, sometimes a little bit of patience is the key to discovering a great new insight. Um, I, was, I was really surprised that many of the great originals throughout history were serious procrastinators. Frank Lloyd Wright, Martin Luther King, Steve Jobs. Um, all of them had consistent habits of waiting until the last possible minute to finalize their ideas because they wanted to stay open as long as possible that, to new information and, and keep their their plans sort of open to improv, improv a little bit. So I think that's a great idea. And that's, that's what endeared me to you, Adam, because when I read that procrastination is a good thing, procrastination can be a good thing, I went like, oh, finally. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, somebody well, that validates my procrastination. But I understand, too, it's got to be in the right framework, not just lazy, not lazy, that's, but, that's, but, that's, but <laughs> waiting when it's appropriate, it waiting and, for the right time. You know, this, this is a little bit of a, a frustrating discovery for me because I, I have always been the opposite of a procrastinator. I'm a procrastinator. Um, so if you, you know that panic you feel like a couple hours before a big deadline when you haven't done anything? Yep. I feel that about three months early. <laughs> so I've, I've always tried to finish things ahead of schedule. And then I had this student uh, named Jihei who came to me and said, you know, I, I have my most creative ideas when I'm procrastinating. And, and I said, that's cute. Where are the four papers that you owe me? <laughs> but she was one of our most creative students. And we decided to gather some data and test this. And she went into a bunch of companies. She had people fill out a survey about how often they procrastinated. 
And then she got their bosses to rate how creative and innovative they were. And sure enough, the procrastinators like me who did things ahead of schedule were rated as less creative than the people who procrastinated sometimes. And I wanted to know, well, what happened to the chronic procrastinators who always procrastinate? And she said, I don't know. They didn't fill out my survey. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Well, no, they, they, they were less creative, too, because you know, they, yeah. they just had they a rush at the last minute. Yeah. But there was this sweet spot of being quick to start things but slow to finish that predicted originality. Yeah. That's how I write a book is that I, I make a promise to the publisher, okay, you'll have a book on this date. And then I start to sweat. <laughs> You know, I give myself about six months lead time, but as each month goes by, the pressure goes up. And then the way I actually write the book is I start the chapter. It's exactly as you said. I start the chapter, I write a few lines, and then I procrastinate. And and then I go and I play golf or I run around and I do something. But in the what I call wasting time activities, ideas start popping into my head. Whereas if I actually sat down to do it, I couldn't do it. What do you think about that? It's quite the opposite of, of what my instinct was, but I have learned to write more like you. So after, um, after this, you know, we, we discovered that procrastination could be good, I thought, gosh, I've got to teach myself to do this. And so I started writing the procrastination chapter of Originals, and I paused one day in mid-sentence and put it away for months, which was agony. <laughs> but when I came back to it, I had all sorts of new ideas. And yes. You know, the, the great thing was that as a procrastinator, I, I, I knew exactly what I needed to do. I just woke up one morning, and I made a to-do list for steps to procrastinate. And then, you know, I just worked diligently toward my goal of making no progress whatsoever toward my goal. <laughs> well, which comes up to the point you covered in your book about deja vu, and what's the other other thing? Vujade. And, it's, and, it's the opposite of deja vu. It's, yeah, and I think your idea on vujade was really, really good for me to hear, because sometimes I'll look at my own... You know the stuff I've written before, and I think, well, that's, I've already written that before. And then vujade means I have another way of looking at it. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, it's basically it's like when you see something you've seen many times before, but all of a sudden you see it with fresh eyes from a new perspective. So imagine that you're you know you're waiting in in line for a taxi, and everybody's done that many times in their lives, but suddenly you notice all these passing cars that have empty seats, and you wonder why can't I have a ride in one of those? And Uber is born. That's a Vujade moment, and okay. we all have them, and we ought to pay more attention to them. So once again, it's Robert Kiyosaki, the Rich Day Radio Show, the good news and bad news about money. And our guest today is Adam Grant. He is the author of the book Originals and the New York Times bestseller Give and Take. And Originals is about creativity. You know, are you a genius? Do you have an idea that could, as Adam was talking about, the Uber idea that is now upsetting many taxi drivers <laughs> and changing the world. You know, it just seems so obvious. And really, that's why Originals is so important because, as you know, the world economy right now is changing very rapidly. And before Adam, you know, before the radio show started, Adam, Adam and I started talking about people who cannot change. Like we at the Rich Dad Company do business with different companies, and these companies, you can actually see them falling behind because they say, well, why should we change? We did it, we did it five years ago. It worked. Why do we need to do something different today? I mean, they, they, and then they give me that what I call corporate speak. It's kind of a stalling corporate speak. It's they speak a lot and say nothing, and it just infuriates me because I hate that. Any comments on that? You know, I don't even know where to start on that. <laughs> 
but that's, there's a lot of that corporate well, speak and uh, procrastination, but it's really laziness and just not going to do it, right? Lot, and, yeah, and I think a lot of fear. There's a lot of fear. Yeah. Of if you do something different, it's not going to be as successful as we are right now. Yeah. You know, what's, what's so interesting about that is most of that seems to be driven by middle managers. So middle managers in an organization are the, the most conservative, the most risk-averse, because if they bet on a new idea that fails, yes. they're afraid they're going to embarrass themselves or ruin their careers. Right. Whereas if they reject a good idea, no one's ever going to know about it. <laughs> It'll never see the light of day, and so they, they just see no downside in that. It's also really sad that middle managers often feel like you know, they've, they've worked really hard to get where they are. And so you know, it's a big fall from that position if they make a mistake. Whereas people at the top and the bottom, they have nothing to lose by taking a risk. Which, which brings the question up for originality. A lot of people think, well, I'm not creative. I'm not, I don't, I'm not original. I don't have these aha moments and ideas. Can originality be learned? Um, no, it's completely hardwired. It's in your DNA, and you're just stuck with whatever you get. No, of course. <laughs> of course it can be learned. I, I think that so much of it is about diversifying your experience. And what do you mean by that? Well, Steve Jobs said in 1982 that, that you have to have a different bag of experiences than everybody else. So, you know, whether that's working in a different function from everybody else in your, your industry or your company, whether that's working in a different culture abroad, doing a little bit of a job rotation, something that gives you a fresh perspective on, on things that other people are taking for granted so that you can question them. And, you know, the, the particular bag of experience that Steve Jobs chose is illegal in most countries. But I think that you know most people make the mistake of just being too narrow, and it's really breadth that helps us unlock our originality. Well, it's like when I uh, was starting out in the so-called financial education field. Naturally, the question was, you know, did you get your MBA from Wharton or Harvard? And I said neither. <laughs> and, and you know, they, they you're discredited immediately. The other thing, I was talking to another friend of mine. I was, I was recommending this book, and the first thing he did was look in the in the references section to see, you know, the alphabet soup, PhD, MBA, and all this, to who endorsed the book. In other words, these people are so blinded that if you don't have MBA or PhD or you didn't work for Google, your ideas are worthless. Have you seen that also? Oh, all the time. I think advanced degrees are seriously overrated, and certainly so are Ivy League degrees. I have a, well, I have it's a easy for you to say because you got one. <laughs> well, uh, you know, or several. I, I, have to, I have to tell you, te- teaching at one of those universities, the, the best students at Wharton are amazing, but so are the best students at schools all around the country. And I think that wh- one of the things that, that I, I think is most important about that is I have a student, Danielle Tussing, who actually studied the, the success and turnover of people who work in, in financial jobs uh, if they come from Ivy and non-Ivy schools. And she found that um, they're equally likely to be star performers, but Ivy Leaguers who are star performers are more likely to quit because they think, I can find something better. Whereas non-Ivy grads, when they're stars, they actually become more loyal to their organizations, and they end up adding more value over time. So I worry a little bit that Ivy League students are more likely to get entitled. But oh, also, the, the, one of the problems with Ivy League students, too, is that they're used to being the top of the class, and then all of a sudden they start at the bottom again, and they really don't have – it's not it's a, it's a foreign territory for them, right, to start at the bottom again. 
I remember having a freshman come into my office the first year I taught at Wharton where he was crying because he didn't get an internship at Goldman Sachs. And, and you know, another thing in, your, in what you talk about a lot is, is the, the people that are not original, they have this need to please. And I think a lot of that comes from the school system and from parents. They want to please their teachers. They want to please their parents so they don't go outside the norm, so they stay within the status quo, and that's stifling. You know, I, I, I would be thrilled if more people walked away from the idea of being liked and said, instead, I just want to be respected. And our guest today is Adam Grant. He is the author of New York Times bestseller, Give and Take, and his latest book is Originals, How Nonconformists Move the World. How do you get your ideas forward, you know, be original when you're working for a turkey who's afraid of getting fired? Middle management. <laughs> Well, there, there are a few things you can do. The, the first one is, I would say, uh, you can look for the, what Chip and Dan Heath call the bright spots. You know, no organization is, is 100% turkeys. <laughs> so the, the goal is to figure out who are the people that have broken a rule or two occasionally, who have driven innovation or change, and go to them with your idea. And more often, you will find those people are on the disagreeable side of personality rather than agreeable. Right? They're not always friendly, warm, polite, welcoming. They're not the nicest people. They're gruff and tough on the surface, but underneath they may have others' best interests at heart. And a lot of us make the mistake of, of going to the, the nicest, friendliest people we know because we think they're going to cheerlead for us. But agreeable people hate conflict, and they don't like to rock the boat. The more disagreeable people will tear your idea apart to try to make it better. And then if you can get them on board, they will run through walls for you. There's a study showing that highly disagreeable people actually experience more joy and happiness when they're in an argument than in a friendly conversation. Are you, talk, are you talking about Donald Trump, by any chance? <laughs> and, and you would know better than I would. And, Adam, you have a story about a woman from Apple who, who challenged Steve Jobs, and she was well below the status. She, she was levels below him in management, but she still challenged him. Yeah, Donna Dubinsky had this, you know, this idea for changing how Apple did distribution in the 1980s. And Steve Jobs wanted to, to blow the whole thing up and, and redo it, and she thought he was throwing out the baby with the bathwater. And she challenged him. And my, my instinct was that you know, she would be fired because Jobs was such a tough, you know, single-minded guy. But she got promoted, and the Mac team ended up having an award for the person who most successfully challenged Jobs. Every one of those people got promoted hmm. because he really saw value in dissenting ideas and opinions. And I think those are the, those are the kinds of people we want to pitch our ideas to. The other, the other thing that I, I find myself recommending a lot to, to students and younger employees is when you have a new idea, it's often hard for other people to appreciate it. Um, there's evidence that, that it takes about 10 to 20 exposures to a new idea before people really get it. And a lot of people just repeat over and over again. They're like, hey, you know that idea that you shot down six minutes ago? Here it is again. It's <laughs> just not that effective, right? What, what you want to do is take your unfamiliar idea and make it more familiar. And my, my favorite example of this uh, was at Disney where they decided to do a, an animated movie based on an original script for the first time instead of just borrowing a fairy tale and adapting that. And nobody liked this idea. It got shot down over and over again. And finally, they're in the big pitch meeting, and Michael Eisner's just scratching his head, and he says, could this be King Lear? And the screenwriter's like, no, this has nothing to do with King Lear. And somebody from the back of the room, she shouts out, no, this is Hamlet. And all of a sudden, the movie gets the green light, most successful film of 1994. It's called The Lion King. Oh. Wow. And what's amazing is, if you go back to the original script, it was pitched as Bambi in Africa with lions. <laughs> <laughs> Who would watch that movie? I have no idea what that's going to be about. But when they reframed it as Hamlet with lions, 
all of a sudden people got it. They said, oh, you know, the, the uncle is going to kill the father, and the son is going to have to avenge that. And they were able to imagine the plot and the characters, and that's such a powerful example for me of taking an unfamiliar script and connecting it to a story that everyone already knew, Hamlet. And I think we all need to do that with our ideas, which is why so many people now as entrepreneurs are pitching their business ideas as Uber for X. And you also talk about, um, I think, I believe it was the Seinfeld show or something. It was almost cut, and somebody saved it. Yeah, Seinfeld was, was rejected by the major focus group. It was also shut down by a, a whole group of NBC executives, first who didn't want to make the pilot, and then after they did, they didn't want to order any new episodes. There's one guy at NBC, Rick Ludwin, who sees potential in it. He doesn't even work in sitcoms. He works in variety and specials. But he's able to recognize the potential in Seinfeld precisely because he's coming from an outside perspective. And he's not trapped in the rules about a sitcom has to be a certain length. It has to be about something. It has to have plot lines to get resolved. And he just said, look, this is funny. It makes me laugh. So let's give this a shot. And, you know, I think that that's, that's a great example of somebody that you want to take your new idea to, right? Somebody who's, who's not just comparing your idea to everything that's been successful in the past and looking for reasons to say no. And you also talked about George Washington was not really a rebel. He was quite happy making money. And then how did he become a revolutionary and then general and then president, the first president of the United States? How did that all happen? There was a whole group of reluctant revolutionaries who <laughs> ended up basically creating America as we know it. And they, a lot of them had to be forced. So Washington was you know, focused after the big war on you know, managing his, his farm and his estate, and he, he was ready to be done with it. And uh, he was actually sort of thrust into the presidency against his own will. And he was told by a, a whole group of supporters, you are the only person that we trust to lead us. And he just felt such a responsibility to those people that he couldn't say no. You know that we have a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs who listen to our program, and you consult to Google, the NFL, Goldman Sachs, Pixar, U.S. Army, Navy. Um, they would love to be a fly on the wall in these conversations that you're having. What are, are there any insights that you could give an aspiring entrepreneur from your work with these companies? Yeah, I think that the the most important thing I've learned from you know from interacting with a lot of of great entrepreneurs. Um, is they feel the same fear and doubt that we all do. I interviewed Elon Musk, Larry Page, Mark Cuban, Peter Thiel, Jack Dorsey, and every one of them said, when I had a new idea, I wasn't 100% sure that it was going to succeed. I knew it was risky, and I was terrified of failing. But then I wanted to know, well, what, what motivated them to act anyway? Yes. And they, they all said different versions of the, the same basic thing, which was, you know, I was afraid of failing, but I was even more afraid of failing to try. And I think what, what a lot of great entrepreneurs understand intuitively is that, yeah, in the moment, the, the scariest thing is taking action because you might fall on your face and right. your business might go bankrupt. But in the long run, our biggest regrets are not our actions. They're our inactions. Mm. They're the, the, the chances that we failed to take. And, you know, I think what, what a lot of these entrepreneurs realize is, yeah, you know, I could also fail by never starting a business at all. And that's the kind of failure that I want to avoid. And I think if you, know, if you just remember that it's the errors of omission, not the errors of commission, that we regret, it's a lot easier to motivate yourself to, to give a new idea a try. 
And let me ask you this, you know, because the Marine Corps always has this bat running battle with the Army. Have you, have you been able to help those guys at all, the Army? You know, Marines are so much beyond them. <laughs> <laughs> what? Can yeah, I ask what you do with the Army and Navy? Well, when, when they need the military, some original ideas. <laughs> they are all convinced that the Air Force is, is the, the best branch. So, <laughs> no, I, uh, you know, I, I did some work with the Army and Navy on, um, on how leaders could inspire and welcome more originality from below. Um, you know, they, they were starting to abandon a lot of the, the command and control ideas that have domin- dominated the military for centuries, and they wanted to know, you know how can we shake things up? And, you know, I think the, the biggest thing that we learned was there was, uh, there, was, there was already innovation happening, and people weren't hearing about it. And so we, we had to figure out who those people were. And one of the, one of the greatest things that I learned um, actually after the, the project I did with the Navy was there was this young aviator, Ben Coleman, who had started rapid innovation cells throughout the Navy, and he got the, the chief of naval operations to, to back it. And uh, eventually the Depar- Department of Defense even built a, an embassy in Silicon Valley to try to learn more from the outside tech world. And I was like, Ben, how, how did you get all this to happen? And how did you skip the normal chain of command? He said, well, I just went around asking, who are the officers who have track records of insubordination? <laughs> Was my name and on that he, list? He found a bunch of people who, you know, who had great ideas and had been shut down by the system, and he, he b- basically built a band of them. And they were able to support each other's efforts. You know, that's very interesting because your friend, the, the, the three-star general, Robert, remember he saw, talked about recruiting people for the Marines? He looked for people who were outside, the, who did not necessarily do well in school, who were kind of the rebels. That's kind of who he, who he looked for as well. Right. And you know, in the years I was in the Marine Corps, I found that generals were different than lieutenant colonels. And the difference was there, the, the generals were exactly kind of like you said, they had their own fears, but they didn't go too outside the box, and they had the guts to move forward. My roommate in Vietnam, you know, I, I got booted out as a lieutenant for insubordination, and he went on to become a three-star general. So in a couple of weeks, he's coming back to my company, and my my friends are all entrepreneurs. He's going to teach us about leadership. But it's kind of interesting that I went on my path and he went on his path, but we both found success in different arenas. So for all of you who are listening out there who are nonconformists, you know, there is a place for people like that, right, Adam? There, there is. And, you know, I think that a lot of people assume that I, I have to go to a, a really innovative place to do it. But even those places struggle with this. So Pixar, we've all admired their creativity in doing computer animated movies. And after they did Toy Story, A Bug's Life, and Toy Story 2, Steve Jobs started to get worried that they were losing their spark of innovation and originality. So he came in and hired an outside director, Brad Bird, and he said, I want you to shake things up and do things differently so that we keep learning and changing. And Brad Bird asked for the black sheep. He said, give me the the frustrated, pissed-off artists who have ideas that nobody's listening to and who are either going to get fired or quit. And they they actually rebooted a bunch of the, the core ways that Pixar made its movies, and they ended up with their biggest success yet, which was The Incredibles. And you know, I think it's it's worth recognizing that if the the great creative and innovative companies out there are struggling with nonconformity, everyone is, and there's no better place to do it than in the place that you are right now. If you're stuck in a company that's not innovating, that is, you know, we were successful last year. Why why do we need to change this year? What would you say to somebody who says maybe I better get out of here because they're not innovating, they're not changing, they're just you know sucking their paychecks and going home? 
What, what do you say to somebody stuck in that kind of environment? The first thing you want to do is you want to figure out whether you have other options. Right? If it may be easier in some cases to leave if you do. If, if you don't have other options, then the next question is basically, can I influence things around here, and do I care enough about the organization to try? And if you decide that the answer to both of those questions is yes, then you, know, you have a little bit of an uphill battle to fight. And I think the, the way that you fight it is you go and you ask people for advice who are above you. Advice seeking, I think, is one of the most overlooked, powerful ways to influence other people. So let's say you go to your boss or your boss's boss, and you say, you know, I've got this idea, and instead of pitching it, you just say, I would love your guidance. I know you're great at getting new ideas implemented around here. If you were me, how would you, you go about trying to, to make this happen? And a couple things will, will then follow from that. The first one is flattery. Right? Your, your boss is going to feel really good about you because, to paraphrase Ben Franklin, we all admire the wisdom of people who come to us for advice. <laughs> they have great taste. They knew me. And then you know, the second thing is perspective taking. You, you, in order to give you advice, your boss has to walk in your shoes and look at the problem through your eyes. And so you know, your boss will feel good about you, will, will understand why this is important to you, and will give you some great suggestions and may even step up and become your advocate. So that's where I would start. And, and Adam, let me ask you this. For, you talk a lot about parents and raising, the, raising kids. What's, what action steps would you give to parents for raising original, creative kids? I think the most important thing is that you need to cultivate a sense of character. And a lot of parents don't do this. So um, look at this in the, in the realm of generosity or morality. If, if you want your kids to be generous, one of the things that a lot of parents do is, you know, when they, when they catch a moment of their kids sharing a toy or going out of their way to help somebody, they say, wow, you know, thank you for, you know, for, for that. That was, uh, that was really helpful. And they want to reinforce the behavior. But that doesn't work nearly as well as if you praise the character. Instead of saying thank you for helping, you say thank you for being a helper. And then it starts to get internalized as part of their self-concept. And the next time the kids have a chance to do that, they'll say, you know, that's, that's who I am. That's the kind of person I want to be. Um, you can do this, by the way, if, if you want to stop cheating, too. Instead of saying don't cheat, you say to your kids, don't be a cheater. And cheating literally cuts in half because now their behavior casts a shadow and they don't want to be that kind of person. So if you apply this to, to being original and nonconforming, you, know, you don't want to say to your kids, hey, you know, like, good job not following the rules. You want to say you are a nonconformist. Right? You are the kind of person who thinks for yourself, and that, that allows kids to feel much more comfortable living that way. Yeah, and you know what really uh, I liked about your book, which makes me really sick, is this whole— <laughs> Oh, good. You made no, him sick, it, Adam. <laughs> it's, it's what you say is a lot of times these prodigies are sucking up to mom and the teacher. You know what I mean? And, like, they have this tiger mom stuff with the Asian mothers, and the kids are— Playing every, the piano. every minute is dictated yeah, by the, something. You know, they want to make mom happy, and mom's going to be like, you're going to go to Harvard and all you're this. You're going to do what I want I, you to do. I, I look at that, and I want to vomit every time I see that. You know, because my dad was a Ph.D., very smart guy, graduated from university in less than two years. But he never told us what to do. He just let us do what we wanted to do and be creative. And I see this tiger mom stuff, and I go, if I was in tiger mom stuff, I'd bite her. You know what I mean? <laughs> Give me a break. So... If you're a kid stuck with a tiger mom, how, what would you do? <laughs> oh, there you go. If, yeah, from the kid's side point of view. Yeah, I, I mean, look, I would, I would give this them. I would take any parent who's a tiger mom and and just give them this amazing book, which I wrote. 
<laughs> Nothing like self-promotion. I <laughs> love it. Love it. No, I would. In all seriousness, what I would do is I, I would I would want to reinforce the message that practice makes perfect, but it does not make new. And that you know, if you really want kids to grow up and, and do something great, then they can't just be clones and replicas of what we already know or of what other people have done. Right. And I think that you know, the easiest way to, to try to do that is, is to say, look, you know, tiger moms, who are they aspiring to? They want their kids to be Einstein. Well, guess what? Einstein had one of the world's earliest tiger moms, as far as I can tell. She forced him to play the violin starting when he was five years old. And he hated it. He hated anything that had to do with rules or authority. And finally, when he, when he became a teenager, she let him quit. And later, he discovered Mozart's sonatas and fell in love with them. And he said that his theory of relativity was a musical thought. And had he not learned the violin, he never would have transformed physics. But she couldn't force him to do that. He had to take an interest in it himself. Mm, and I, I would love for more parents to understand that. Special thanks to Adam Grant. He's the author of the book, Originals, How Nonconformists Move the World. So it's a very interesting show. And I, I think for me, one of the biggest takeaways from this program with Adam is when he talked about originality, they, he says that the starting point of originality is curiosity. It's pondering why, asking why, exploring whether a better option exists. If you just start from there, that can put you on the path to being more original. And quote, unquote, he says the hallmark of originality is rejecting the default and exploring whether better options exist. And so not, don't just take the status quo. Well, here's this. You have, to, you have to use it. Start questioning everything. Yeah. So, Melissa, this is Ask Robert. Submit your questions to askrobert at richdadradio.com. So, Melissa, what's the first question? Our first question today, Robert, comes from Emily in Tampa, Florida. Favorite book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Her question is this. What is the one skill you have to have that will most assure entrepreneurial success? Well, there's a lot of skills you have to have, unlike being an employee. But the number one skill I would say, well, I would say, is you have to be able to sell. And it's really not sell. It's about can you handle rejection? Because a lot of times rejection or being put down or being you know, embarrassed is what stops people. So as I always talk about in sales, to get one sales, you take 99 rejections. You know, when I was working for Xerox, I was knocking on a hundred doors to get one sale. Now, if you think getting doors slammed in your face is fun, think again. You know, So that's really the hardest part, and it's probably the number one reason people don't become entrepreneurs, because sales, as Blair Singer, Rich Dad Advisor, always says, sales equals income. And most people cannot generate income to cover their personal expenses. And, and I would say to Emily, I, I think, too, the number one thing you have to do on a regular basis is you got to work on yourself. Because as you're knocking on those doors and you're getting that rejection and it's not fun and it, you get some fear coming up, you've really got to work on yourself. Robert and I do work on ourselves constantly. It's called personal development. And I think as an entrepreneur, that's key. That's crucial for anybody that wants to be successful as an entrepreneur. Next question, Melissa. Our next question comes from Jose in San Marcos, Texas. Favorite book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. He says, I've studied your work and understand the importance of having the best team around me. Unfortunately, I think I've made a mistake with a key member of my team, and now I'm not sure how to handle it. In full disclosure, this person is a family member. What's your advice, Robert? <laughs> well, the, the advice is a little too late. The advice is don't do business or especially entrepreneurship with friends and family. Now, on the other side of it, I've been in business with my brother. It's been fantastic. He and I make great 
we made great partnership in our nylon wallet company. And Kim and I, you know, we've been husband and wife. We've we started the Rich Dad Company. for over together. 30 years. Yeah. So it can work really well, but it can't work really well. That's the risk you take. But I would say the number one thing, exactly as Kim says, personal development, you have to work on yourself. If you get angry at somebody else, don't stay angry. Figure out what you did to cause the anger. You have to find out what's going on inside of you rather than blaming somebody else for the failures. Yeah, and oftentimes I think people reach out to family members as business partners because it's easy. You know, they're comfortable with this person, but do they really have the skills necessary to be a great partner? What are they bringing to the table? Or is it just is it just that they're comfortable asking this person to be a partner or do they really bring something to the table of a huge value? And now that I'm wiser and lash marks across my back, you know, mm-hmm. I'm really cautious who I do business with. Yes, we are. I met, I met some really nice people, great people, great ideas. But at the, my stage of life, I don't do business with poor people because there's a reason they're poor. Now, if they're not w- willing to work on what causes them to be poor, then I don't have time to lift them up. So that's why with Rich Dad Advisors, all of our advisors are entrepreneurs. Most are multimillionaires and all this, but they've had the hard knocks. They've been knocked down many times and they keep coming back. And that's what I look for. I don't want to be mommy and daddy and bringing some new guy along or new woman along. Next question. Our next question comes from Jenny in Omaha, Nebraska. Favorite book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Her question is this. What can you do if you have a really good idea share it with an upper manager, then they turn around and steal your idea oh, and present that. it as their own. Oh, I hate that. She says, this happened to me. My manager totally took credit for my idea. Well, again, that was a whole discussion with originals, Adam Grant. You know, most middle managers are turkeys. They can't go up and they're afraid of falling down. They want to make sure their idea ideas are proven and all this. You know, it happens in any organization. In the Marine Corps, it happened to me all the time. You know, I, I got into massive fights with my superior officers. We're not allowed, to, and you're not allowed to do that. So that's why I was kind of booted out. Whereas my friend Jack, my roommate, became a three-star general. He had the tact and ability to handle people like that, and those are people skills. Any comments, Kim? Well, I would say to Jenny, the first thing I would do if I were you is I would go pick up Adam's book called Originals because he talks a lot about that, and he works with a lot of major companies. He talks a lot about the middle managers and how to deal with it. And if you have an idea, how do you handle that within your corporation? So I would start there with the book Originals. And what's even more hysterical for me is the number of people who claim that they're my rich dad. (laughs) They gave me the idea. I have been gone to lawsuits saying – those are my ideas, you know, and I'm your rich dad, and you owe me 50% of everything. I mean 50% of millions of dollars. So there's a lot of sick, wacko people out there. Or as the saying goes, you know, success has many friends or suitors, and failure is an orphan. And really, that's really the reality of life. Adam talks about it in his book, Originals. He says, you know, as a political person starts to win, more people like him because he's winning. But the moment he starts to, or he or she starts to lose, everybody ditches him. So that's the risk you take and why personal development and handling rejection is essential if you want to be successful in the world. We all have fear, but just don't let fear stop you. So if I could start closing on that, it's a very important subject, you know, because we all have an original idea. And when I was a kid, I remember the kids who are A students, they didn't wind up going very far. They are conformists. They like sucking up, you know, kissing a little butt here and there. They like climbing the corporate ladder, but they don't get to the top. 
because you know even the prodigies and music and all that they can play somebody else's music, but they can't play their music. You know, instead of being the Beatles, they wind up as a lounge act on a ship, you know, playing Beatles music because they're not original. And the Beatles and the Stones and those guys, we love them because they were original. They they shook the world up. Any comments, Kim? Well, I love, too, what, what Adam said in this program about he talked to some of the, you know, very successful businessmen like the Mark Cubans and... I'm not sure all the ones he mentioned, but he talked to a lot of very, very successful business people. And he said the reason they started, they had that fear. They all had that fear, that fear of, fear of failure, of losing money. They all had it. But they had they, their bigger fear was the regret of not doing it, the regret of inaction. 